0: This morning, everybody, whether you're live or live streaming. My name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor, and I'm excited for today. Let me tell you why. For the last about year or so, we've been having conversations about how to build out our teaching team at CBC. And let me tell you the why behind that is because we really do believe in part of our values that says everyone has a part to play. There's one thing I'd say we get wrong in the church of America and evangelicalism in this country is that our gospel is not a come and see gospel. This is not field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. Our gospel is based on, and you see it in Matthew 8, is based on a gospel that says not come and see, but go and be. Jesus equips, the church equips, so that the people can see the goodness of God through the people of God. And so for the last year, we've built a team of people at CDC, some on staff and some lay leaders and a couple elders, at least one that you're going to hear from today. And they're going to be teaching throughout this year. We've taken a couple classes. They've listened to my wisdom. After that five minutes, we took some more classes. (laughs) And today, Pete Peterson, who's the chairman of our elder board, is going to come up here and talk about authority. And I'm excited. I'm excited to see people step up and serve. I'm excited to see how God uses our people. I'm excited that we get to equip. I'm excited that I don't have to talk about authority because let's be honest, nobody would believe me, all right? But I'm excited today because we're gonna do what we do every Sunday. We come together in this space and, and we trust that the Holy Spirit is here. And in such a critical culture where you look for the bad in situations and you look for what's wrong, I think Jesus asks us when we come together to talk about how good God is to see the goodness in the situation and where God is leading us or speaking to us. So we're going to take a minute and just set our hearts. We're going to move from being critical by nature in our culture to being contributors to the conversation of faith this morning. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for Pete. I'm going to ask if you're comfortable. You just take a second. And ask that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning. i want to ask that we take some time and quietly pray for Pete, that God uses his preparation this morning so that we might see more of him. So join me as we pray. God, I'm so thankful that we can be here. I'm so thankful that in a culture of criticism and, and chaosness, uh, I'm thankful that you're good and you're constant. I'm thankful that we can be here that we can worship and we can remember what really holds us together as followers of Jesus and what's truly important and good in a world that tries to tell us everything else but Jesus is. So today as we open your scripture in Matthew chapter 8, speak to us, Holy Spirit. Might you reveal more of the goodness of God? Might you show us the good authority of Jesus as we see a couple stories that we modeled it to his people? Speak to us this morning. If you're comfortable I'd ask that you just take a couple of seconds and say a quiet prayer and and ask that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit through the scriptures today. And also ask that you pray for Pete, that the Holy Spirit uses his words in his preparation to show us why God is so worthy being called a good father and a good Lord. Why God is so worthy of our worship. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, but he's coming up here. Remember, he's my boss, so be kind, all right? Thank you. (laughs)
1: auditorium, online. Great to see you all this morning. Authority. For some of you just saying the word, you bristle. As we talked about it, preparing for this session, someone said, I bristle at authority. Some people perhaps hear the word and are a bit more fearful than bristly or angry. And for a few, authority may be a peaceful word, something that brings safety and security. Our response to authority is critically important. A bad response to authority can have really bad consequences. I have some experience with authority. Thirty-eight years, counting my time at the Air Force Academy, first learning to be obedient, and then learning to exercise some authority with a few folks and a few more folks, and it grew. At the Academy, authority was pretty easy. Yes sir, no sir, no excuse sir. Only three answers you needed to know. I learned authority in the front leaning rest, the up position of a push up, singing the Star Spangled Banner. But then I got a little authority training younger cadets. But there's always an authority above. My T 41 instructor, my senior year, first semester, a major whose name I don't recall for good reason was a screamer, and I was not a good pilot. That lasted three or four rides, and then, in the Lord's kindness, I got sick, really sick. Five weeks in the hospital. But the good news is, I didn't go back to T-41 training until second semester. And when I got there, Lieutenant Neil Anderson was there. A crop duster, good old southern Alabama man, number one in his pilot training class. But instead of picking the fastest fighter he could find, he chose to come and fly T-41s, Cessna 172s, and teach cadets. And I was his first student. And he got me through T-41s. I was not very good. Now, asking a veteran to talk about his experience can be dangerous, so I'm really going to need to watch the clock to make sure I don't go over the 60 minutes that Charlie gave me. (laughs) Just kidding. I learned that from you. Most important my time at the Academy was I became a Christian. I received Christ in my freshman year in October of 19-something. But I was blessed to be able to get spiritual growth training from officers and cadets for four years as part of the navigator ministry there at the academy. And in particular, I watched officers who led our Bible studies, who taught our classes, but they invited me into their homes and I saw them interact and I saw godly authority both at work and at home. As a young captain, um, the wing commander had me stay after a meeting one day, told the ops officer, have, have Captain Peterson stay. We had a private conversation. It appears that rolling my eyes and making faces at the maintenance group commander was a bad idea. But he was a good guy. He was kind enough to explain that really pretty quietly. And then he even gave me a ride in his white, white top staff car so I didn't have to walk a half a mile back because my boss had already gone home. Increasing levels of responsibility, but the key is, and this was true in my whole Air Force career, and I suggest to you it's true for any person in uniform. There is always someone with authority over you. We have military symbols of authority, our rank, our hats, our uniform, wings that say how many hours we've flown, reserve parking spots, white-top staff cars for the Wing Commander. Yes, it's authority. Yes, I'd like to get in and get out to get back to work. But the reality is it's a reminder to me as the commander that I am the commander, but I am responsible for these men and women every time that I get in that car. Now, for those of you who know me a little bit, you'll recognize by personality and experience I'm a rule follower, not a risk-taker. So, a shocker, just between us here in the auditorium and a few folks online, occasionally I break a rule. Stop, I know. (laughs) It's hard to believe, but I must confess it's true. I occasionally break a rule I can always justify in my heart of hearts Rationalized my decision with good rationale as to why it's okay this one time. But once in my Air Force career, I rejected authority, although it didn't feel like it when it first happened, and it earned me some pretty significant negative circumstances, negative consequences. Without going into detail, there was a flying regulation that said, here's something that the supervisors of flying must do. It's built for fighter airplanes, trainer airplanes, single pilot, no gas. They have to be able to talk on a radio to the squadron. I had big airplanes, multiple crew members with gas to go 3,000 miles. And sometimes they went 1,000 outside of radio range. It made no sense for someone to sit in the squadron while 1C5 was in North Dakota instead of Oklahoma. So short version. I said, we should change that rule for big airplanes. And I put in a waiver request, a request from the higher headquarters to break the rule, not break it, but to have the rule written differently for me. And I told my wing commander, as I should do, and he agreed with me and I said, this makes no sense, I'm going to start tonight. He said, okay. I was in violation and I put those people in violation. And when the inspector came around, I determined that the four-star general was quite offended that I had broken one of his top three rules by what I had been doing. So he sent a colonel out to talk to me, not to find out what I was thinking or what the plan was. I think he just sent him out to say, why shouldn't I fire this guy immediately? I went to the wing commander, I reminded him of our conversation. His comment, I don't recall that. Wow. I believe that he probably didn't recall it, but I did. And I can tell you that felt pretty sick to my stomach. Alone, didn't seem anyone had my back. More on that later. Your experiences are likely different than mine. Hopefully you've had some good experiences with authority, but I have to believe that for most of you, there's been some point in time when some supervisor, some authority in your life didn't work out, mistreated, didn't do what they said they would do. Perhaps you're thinking of a teacher, a coach, Work supervisors, maybe a medical professional, hopefully not, but perhaps even a church staff or a lay leader somewhere in your church background. And some of you exercise authority over others, and perhaps you've been greeted by resistance, if not rejection, of your authority. Ultimately, broken trust leads to lack of trust. And I see at least three commonalities as to why we tend to bristle, we tend to resist, push back. The first, we don't want to be told what to do. What's the first word that your child or grandchild learned? No. We come by it naturally, it's ingrained in us, our desire for independence. shows up in all of our relationships, whether with the Lord or with others. We also resist authority, as we just said, because in our past experience, someone broke trust, someone broke faith. And then as a result of that, we're not sure we know how to assess and find good leadership. And so the easiest thing to do is, well, let's just resist, let's just not trust any leadership. It's the easiest thing to do, to avoid being hurt again. but I think we should look at the other side of the coin. In some sense, no or a lack of trust represents, comes from bad authority. So if I look at the other side, perhaps then positive trust comes from good authority. Positive trust is often a good result of good authority. And so with that in mind, I did some research. Um, First, please note, I make no judgment here about any organization or industry. I'm only reporting the news. I'm only reporting study results. It's not my personal opinion. The Gallup 2020 survey on the confidence of institutions, they go out and they poll people about their confidence, how much trust and confidence they have in institutions. Their top two scores that you can give an institution are a great deal or quite a lot of confidence. In the institution. And so I looked and virtually every institution since 2001 until 2020 had lost between 50 and 30 to 50 percent of the people who thought, who had confidence in their authority. 30 to 50 percent. The research bears out what some of us in this room are feeling even as I speak. Additionally, A chart um, I found, uh, the Edelman Trust Barometer, and what it does is it looks at trust and it says that trust is based on competence, power, strength, to do what you say you're going to do, and ethics, integrity, do you intend to do what you have the power to do? And so you can see, as you look at the chart up there, if you're higher on the chart, you have more integrity. If you're to the right on the chart, you have more competence. But you'll see a couple of organizations who shall remain nameless for whom they're neither perceived as competent nor effective, nor powerful. NGOs get a, a better grade in the ethics, the integrity department, and yet they're viewed as being perhaps not as effective. Business is a little bit more effective, but not viewed Positively, from an integrity point of view. And so I think it helps us see a little bit to have a picture of what we're talking about. And what do you notice? What's blank? The upper right hand corner, right? Where those who are effective and those who act with integrity with ethics are found. And so what we're trying to do is find something in that upper right hand corner to define good authority as having both the power and capability to act and that their purposes are used to good intent. Now we've been talking so far about earthly authority. Let's take a look at godly authority. I could spend the whole time on what God says about authority, but I'm gonna go really fast. I'm gonna give you the executive version of God's authority as a foundation, if you will, for our passage today. So I'm going I'm to read this so I can go faster and not stumble. All authority comes from God who created it all. God delegated authority and ultimate power to Jesus. His power is far above every rule, authority, power, and dominion, as we saw earlier. Jesus embodied God's ultimate authority while he walked on the earth. God created us to live under his authority and for flourishing, for abundant life. He delegates authority to us first to choose. Of course, there's a problem there, right? Our human tendency moved by pride is to choose, but to choose in our own direction, which didn't work out well in the garden. God also delegates authority for us to rule, and in doing so, he established some structure some formation, if you will, for how authority would be accomplished in order to manage for our good. Three of those spheres of influence, if you will, government, homes, and the church. And if you'll permit me, I'll put homes and organizations together because in that day, a home had a father in charge of the family, but a master in charge of the workers, if you will, the business, that was around the home. And so not only does he set that authority up, but he tells us to what? Be subject to that authority, to the government. In Romans 13, and in both Ephesians 5 and 6, Ephesians 3 and 4, we get called to obedience in other kinds, other spheres of influence. Bottom line, God's good authority is trustworthy, powerful, capable, Fully designed for our good, for our flourishing. And so we can flourish in accordance with his good purpose. And so if you'll permit me, I've changed. You'll see I've slightly modified the chart to be God's authority is trustworthy. And looking at it from the standpoint of more competent and powerful or not. And positive intent for others. And as we said, we're still looking for what? We're looking for that upper right-hand corner for someone who operates in, in that realm. So with that in mind, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. We'll break this passage up down through verse 17 into about three parts. In the first part, Jesus went to Capernaum, and it says in Matthew 8 that a centurion came to him and said lord my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible anguish Jesus said i'll come heal him now we get some additional information some extra detail from Luke chapter 7 Luke chapter 7 talks about before the centurion actually talked to Jesus the centurion asks some elders to come and see now There are a lot of surprises in this passage. Surprising that a centurion, a gentile, a soldier with power over the Jewish people would come to a Jewish carpenter. But he highly valued his servant. Perhaps you find that surprising. But ultimately he reached a defining moment in his life. He apparently thought so much of this servant that he was willing to swallow his pride and humility, go to the elders at apparently the synagogue where he was at and perhaps attended, I don't know. He asked the elders to go and ask Jesus to come because he had heard that he had done these miracles and thought that he could save his servant. Hearing what Jesus had done, I believe you can. I don't know if you will, but I believe you can. It's unexpected in some sense, I think, that the elders were willing to go for him, right? Typically, they would not be, like to be around the military or not have the military in their face. But in this case, it appears that because the centurion thought well of the Jewish people, it says in Luke 7, and because he built their synagogue, he was a good guy. And so in Luke 7, the elders come to Jesus and they say, He's worthy. He's worthy of your support. Perhaps surprisingly to the disciples, Jesus, without apparently any big discussion, says yes, and he goes. What's the source of the centurion's faith? The writer in Hebrews chapter 11 says, faith is being sure of the hope, of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Ultimately, faith is believing that God is who he says he is, and he'll do what he says he'll do. The centurion understood authority as you see in the in the oops, excuse me as you see in the passage he says, Lord, I'm not worthy, but just say the word. Just say the word. I don't know if you will, but if you'll say the word, he'll be healed. He understands where his authority comes from, delegated from a power, and he sees Jesus and what Jesus is doing and says there must be power behind this man who can perform miracles. And so, faith is our means. It's how authority is received. Draw a little diagram. The idea that God's authority exists. Like oil, it's in the ground, whether you pull it out of the ground or not. His authority exists, but we can appropriate that authority through faith. And we appropriate that authority through faith in order to bring that faith into our experience, his power into our experience. Now, the Jewish leaders wanted to go the other way around. They wanted to use their own experience and and test Jesus, and that never works. That never works. Faith is not works, it's not earning. And yet even as I stand here, if you asked me, of course I'd say, grace comes by faith, not by works. And yet, as I prepared for this lesson I might be thinking in the back of my mind, will I have my quiet time this morning? How am I going to get blessed when I do this service this morning? Did I do all the right things? All the right things are good to do, but not for the purpose of earning grace. The elder said, he's worthy. The centurion said, I'm not worthy. Isaiah 64, God's word is clear. Our good works are like filthy, bloody rags when it comes to its ability to save us. Good things that we should do. Yes, we we should act, and yet not for the purpose of earning anything. The Jewish leaders forgot this wisdom. And as a result, in this scenario and in many others we'll see in the New Testament, they, most of them failed to see Christ for who he was. In the second part of the passage, it says in verse 10 that Jesus is amazed at the centurion's faith. The word amazed, or in some of your versions, it says marveled, the word occurs a fairly good number of times in the New Testament, but it only occurs twice in relation to Jesus. It says Jesus marveled here, he was amazed at the centurion's faith, he was also amazed at the lack of faith, the unbelief in his hometown of Nazareth. And seeing the centurion's faith, we see Jesus issue a strong indictment against these Jewish leaders, the Jewish people that are standing in front of him. He starts talking about a banquet, a final kingdom, and he says, Many from the east and the west will come. Who are those? East and west, not Israel, they're Gentiles. Surprising. And more surprising, he said, many of the sons of Israel won't be attending. Shocker. The Jewish elders, the Jewish people, had been taught that their obedience to the law, the 613, oh, by the way, they made 613, so maybe they had a chance of keeping those because they couldn't keep the 10 that God really gave them. Changing the rules. It's kind of like grading on the curve, right? Some of you have taken a class where you get graded on the curve. I loved grading on the curve in my geography class at the academy. I did not care a hoot about geography. I just wanted to do just enough to get better than the other 90% and get an A. But I didn't remember anything I learned about geography. The Jews wanted to grade on the curve, put other people down and put themselves ahead. God's word's clear for those Jewish leaders. And you can look back in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 23, in verses 1 and 5, he says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep. The sheep of my pasture. But, he says, the days are coming when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely who is just and right in the land. Prophecy of the coming Messiah. And for these Jews, in Matthew chapter eight, they're standing with the Messiah and many of them can't see him. In contrast to the bad shepherds, John 10 tells us Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus knows the sheep by name. He lays down his life for the sheep of his own free will, his own authority. The thief comes to kill and destroy, but I come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And I have other sheep, not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also, one flock, one shepherd. The same one flock, one shepherd banquet that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 8. The faith of the centurion, I would suggest, is transformational. He chose to trust in Jesus, in Jesus' good authority, and as a result, his servant was healed at that hour, the scripture says. Choosing good authority gives life. Gave physical life to the centurion's servant. It gives us spiritual life when we trust in Jesus' sacrifice and death on the cross for us. On the contrary, pride, the heart of sin in the garden, leads to rebellion. And on that note of pride, we'll go back to my story. Rejecting authority, in this case, good, valid authority from my four-star boss, can have serious consequences. When all is said and done, pride almost got me fired. It didn't get me fired, but I lost my chance for that particular time at Wing Command. And God took me on a four-year journey to learn a number of things, including some humility and compassion. Um, You can talk to my wife, I'm still a work in progress in that regard, when it comes to humility and compassion. But that journey of transformation made me a better commander some years later when I got another opportunity. And more importantly, that journey, that transformation, made me a more mature believer and follower of Jesus. The last section, Jesus goes down and he sees that Peter's mother-in-law is sick. If we look at the synoptic Gospels in parallel, we find that Matthew didn't record it. But the others, Mark and Luke, both say they requested Jesus' help. And so Jesus walked in and touched her hand, and Peter's mother-in-law was healed immediately. Didn't stretch, didn't take stood up and started serving. Some of you have seen the movie The Chosen. Again, it's a movie, I got that. But it's just amazing to me to see Peter's mother-in-law gets out of bed, goes to the kitchen and starts barking orders. She's in charge, she's healed. Different than the Centurion, where He wasn't in the house, he was at a distance. So, in these 17 verses, a leper, a Gentile's request for a servant, a woman, either with a touch or a word, close, touching, or physically separated. Jesus, in verse 16, continues his healing, healing many others of both physical disease and spiritual disease of demons. And the last verse, Matthew references Isaiah 54, showing that this healing, spiritual and physical, was in fact fulfilling the prophecy that this was indeed the Messiah. Jesus demonstrated his power, his authority over all things physical and spiritual. He served people who were outcasts, disrespected and weak. And I I heard a a line this week that I particularly appreciated. Someone I was listening to said Jewish leaders drew lines to keep people out. In contrast, Jesus kept crossing the line to bring people in. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament messianic prophecy. So we've seen God's kingdom is built on his authority. He gave that authority. He embodied it in Jesus while Jesus walked on the earth as he was in Matthew 8. Trusting Jesus' good authority gives abundant life, spiritual and physical. Because Jesus always operates not in the upper right-hand corner. Can I have my chart with the upper right-hand corner? This is a pitiful attempt, right? Where does Jesus operate? He's out in infinity somewhere. He's not even in the upper point of that right-hand corner. He's out there somewhere which I tried to show with an arrow. But that's the kind of authority that we're looking for and that is available to us if we're willing to appropriate it to in faith ask. Well, we get a choice. Remember I told you, you get a choice. We get to choose to trust in faith or choose not to be willing to trust. The bottom line, my view we've talked about this morning, trusting Jesus' good authority gives us life modeling Jesus' good authority gives others life. So where are you? If that chart is Jesus' authority, what quadrant are you in? Do you believe he's powerful enough? Do you believe he intends good for you or something else? As a commander, I always had a hotline, a red phone In most cases, the red phone went straight to my boss's desk and vice versa. And when the phone rang, the rule is, answer it in three rings. Not the secretary, you answer it in three rings if you're in the building. So I had a boss that whenever I picked up that phone, he was yelling. Sometimes he was yelling for fun, but most times he was yelling because something was wrong. And so you know what I learned about hotlines? Before I pick up a hotline, I need what I do wrong, what I forget, what didn't I get in, what what I do wrong. And see, the problem is that was a real experience of mine, but I wrongly interpreted the experience to believe that every hotline works like that. And so when I went to the Pentagon, I had one of the nicest bosses, sharp guy, but when the hotline rang, I finally figured out when he's on the other end, how are you doing? How's your day? What's going on? What can I do to help? I'd wrongly interpreted I I needed to transform my thinking from an event that was real that happened but didn't apply to my other circumstances and in some cases doesn't apply to me spiritually. So what's driving your current thinking, my current thinking in response that we might consider rejecting Jesus' authority. What makes us question his power or question his good intent? Dallas Willard says you can't trust Jesus in areas in which you don't think he's competent. I think most of us would get the right answer if you were asked, is Jesus competent? The question is, the question is, does your life look like that? Does your response to his authority look like that? Yes. We talked before about discerning earthly authority. You can use the chart. There's no eternity upper right-hand corner. But again, are the people that you're considering placing yourself under authority to, are they powerful or not? Will they do what they said they're going to do or not? And if you're, eva- if you're evaluating, I suggest you find another mature believer, someone you trust. Bring them into the conversation. And finally, how do we model Jesus' authority? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a Patrick Lencioni book called The Motive, and he asks an important question to leaders. He said, what's the reason you are a leader or want to be a leader? Is it for the perks, for the rewards, for the pay? Or is it because you want the stewardship, the responsibility to do the hard work to support the organization and the people in that organization? How do people experience our authority over them? If you don't know, have a cup of coffee with them and ask. Colossians 4.1, masters treat your slaves with justice and fairness because even if you're in authority, you too, I too, have an authority in heaven. C.S. Lewis put it well. Authority exercised with humility, obedience accepted with delight. The lines along which our spirits live gives us life. Imagine what's possible as individuals, as a church body, as a community, and beyond, if we're willing to accept, in faith, Jesus' authority. What's possible with regard to our families, our relationships, our work, our finances? This morning, I challenge me, and I challenge you. Trusting Jesus' good authority gives life modeling Jesus' authority, good authority, gives others life. Jesus truly is the good shepherd. He's our good shepherd. Amen. Let me pray.